You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. For our first scripture reading this morning, we'll be reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning at verse 22 through verse 27. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our text this morning comes from the book of Second Samuel chapter 21, beginning at verse 15. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibachai the Hushathite killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all. He also was descended from Rapha. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. On this first Sunday of the year, as we begin a new year, it is often a time that we reflect back and we reflect towards the future. And when I speak with many Christians today, many of them are not so optimistic about the future. They think of the past year, and they think of the year to come, and for them they see discouragement about the future. Whether it be disappointment in government leaders, disappointment or discouragement in the economy, or disappointment and discouragement in the morals of the culture around them. Sometimes they say to me, we wish we could go back to another era. We wish we could go back to a time in the past when things seemed better in terms of morals and the culture and perhaps in terms of the economic times. Sometimes they express to me a wish that former government leaders could be their leaders 
today. The original readers of First and Second Samuel were thinking the same thing. They were living during the time of the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. And they often thought back to those days when they were one united nation under King Saul and King David and King Solomon. And they looked around them at the world that which they lived and they longed for those previous leaders that God had put on the throne and they longed for a time when their nation was one. And so at the end of the books of First and Second Samuel, God inspires the author to give them a conclusion to the books. If you've read those books all the way through, you may notice that toward the end of Second Samuel, we are following a timeline of King David's life. The stories of Absalom and his rebellion and David's return to Jerusalem once again as king is followed in verse, in chapter 21 by a story about King Saul. King Saul had not been mentioned in the books of Samuel since 1 Samuel. And now at the end we have a story of King Saul in chapter 21. And if you look at your outlines, you'll notice there is a reason for that. It is because the authors of First and Second Samuel are concluding these two books with a conclusion. This conclusion has a particular structure which reflects for us the message of these two books. In Hebrew, we call it a chiastic structure. And on your outlines, I've laid it out for you. And if you turn it sideways, you'll notice that it forms sort of a mountain is what it does. It has themes on each side of the mountain and then similar themes on the opposite sides and it comes to a peak at the top. On the each side, we have the first story of King Saul in chapter 21 and the expiation of his sin. At the end of the story of First and Second Samuel, chapter 24, again we have a story of King David, a king of Israel, and the expiation of his sin. Then we have in chapter 21, the text we read this morning, a story of David's mighty men, followed in chapter 23 by a story of David's mighty men. And at the peak of the structure, the peak of the structure which indicates all the points the author is trying to make, we have the point of the conclusion. In David's song, chapter 22, in the last words of David in chapter 23, David has a message for his readers inspired by God as he writes those words. They are not to find their hope in King Saul because in King Saul in chapter 1, 21, he sinned and Israel suffered a famine. They are not to find their hope in King David because even King David sinned in 2 Samuel 24 by counting the fighting men. And Israel suffered a plague. But in David's song, he tells God's people that they must not find their hope in an earthly king, 
because God is their king. They must not look back to times past and wish that they could live in a previous era because God remains their king both now and forevermore. And this is the conclusion of the stories of King David and King Saul in the books of First and Second Samuel. Well, if we understand the outer layers of our text, don't put your hope in Saul, for he sinned. And the other side, don't put your hope in David, for he sinned. And if you're reminded that God is their king, what then do we do with these stories of David's mighty men? Some have said, perhaps these stories are included in Scripture as hero stories, simply to remind God's people of God's power in the past and how He once worked in the lives of His people to encourage them and to remind them. But that's all. If we understand the structure as we've just laid out, we can better understand the message of these stories. It's not just a story and a scripture passage for God's people who lived long ago and not for us today. But these verses and these stories are about us who live in our day. In our text this morning, there is a verse which states an introductory point and the last verse which states the conclusion. What is the story that is at hand in chapter 21, verse 15? We read that there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down with his men to fight the Philistines. In the last verse, we have a conclusion. What was the result of this battle? What was the result of David and his men going down to fight the Philistines? Verse 22 tells us, These four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. There was a battle between God's people Israel and the Philistines, and what was the result of that battle? They fell at the hands of David and his men. But these weren't just any men who fought against David. The first part of verse 22 tells us that these four were descendants of Rapha in Gath. In the King James Version, they actually translate the descendants of Rapha as giants. Some of your Bibles footnote it the same way. That is because they were giants. These four men who were defeated were giants from Gath. And throughout the text, throughout our verses, descriptions are given to us of these particular giants. In verse 16, we are told of Ishbi Banab. He was one of the descendants of Rapha, and his bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, and he was armed with a new sword. My Bible footnote tells us, That 300 shekels was about seven and a half pounds or 3.5 kilograms. It weighed as much as the head of a sledgehammer. For most people to handle such a weapon 
it would take two hands to handle and throw such a weapon. But this giant was able to handle not only a bronze spearhead that weighed 300 shekels, but he was also armed, we're told, with a new sword. We are also told about the third giant. A description is given of him in verse 19. We're told that this giant was named Goliath the Gittite at the end of that verse, and he had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. A weaver's rod was very thick metal. It had to be thick and strong for the weaver to be able to weave the cloth. This giant was able to use his shaft like a weaver's rod as a spear and to throw it and to use it as a weapon on the field of battle. This same spear is described as the weapon of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, the nine-foot-tall Goliath who fought King David used the same spear. In verse 20, we're told of of another giant, the fourth on the list. He was described as a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. The extra fingers giving him better grip. The extra toes giving him better balance on the field of battle. These giants were monsters who fought for the enemies of Israel and were able to fight against God's people. And so as our text gives us the descriptions of these giants, their size, their weapons, the text also describes for us the men of David who fought them. And as we look at the description of the men of David, we would think that perhaps their weapons would be given we would think that perhaps their size or quickness would be described. But the only thing we're told of each one of David's men is that they are related to King David. Verse 17, Abishai is the son of Zeruiah. Zeruiah is David's sister, which makes him David's nephew. In verse 18, the person who fought Saph, we're told in the middle of that verse, is Sibachai the Hushathite. As a Hushathite, it means he is from the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. In verse 19, we're told that the one who fought Goliath was Elhanan, son of Jair Oregim, who was a Bethlehemite. That means he was from David's hometown. And finally, in verse 21, for this giant who taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimeah, David's brother, killed him. He is described again as David's nephew. The qualification of the giants, their large size, their mighty and powerful weapons. The qualification of David's men, they're related to King David. Nevertheless, as we read the story of this battle, we are only told in the conclusion of our text one word about it. 
they fell at the hands of David and his men. As you work your way through the text and as you look at each particular story, you notice the description of the battle that actually took place is very, very short. Very, very little is said. In the first battle, Abishai, verse 17, who came to David's rescue, two words are described to tell us about his killing of the giant. He struck him and killed him. In the second story, verse 18, again, as we read a description of the battle, we read that Sibachai the Hushathite killed Saph. One word. In verse 19, we read that Jair Oregim the Bethlehemite killed Goliath the Gittite. And finally, verse 21, when the giant taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. Struck and killed, first story. Killed, the second story. Killed, the third story. Killed, the fourth story. And to sum it all up, they fell. Now my sons at home love to watch Lord of the Rings. They love the battle scenes and the the monsters that are fighting one another and the sons of men who are attacking these monsters and destroying them and, and seeking to win the battle. And having read this text, they've come to me and said, this isn't enough. We want a greater description of these battles. We want to know uh, how these giants were destroyed and and how the battle took place and, and more details. And all we have in our text is one word describing each battle and in summary, that they fell. That isn't enough for us. But God's Spirit has inspired this text. And God's Spirit has inspired the author to write it exactly how it took place. The reason more descriptions are not given of the battle is because it wasn't even a fight. How dare these giants stand up to God's King? How dare these giants taunt God's king and God's people Israel. And as God's men, David's men, fought these giants, it was no contest. It wasn't even a fight. These giants fell in an instant without even using their weapons. Some have pointed to verse 19, where we are told that the giant's name was Goliath the Gittite. Some have rumored that perhaps Goliath the Gittite was not killed by David in 1 Samuel 17. But the author is connecting us with that story. I believe there were two Goliaths. And the King James Version even translates it, Goliath the brother of the other Goliath. But the reason the author of First and Second Samuel connects us with that story, not only with his name, but with his spear, is because he is reminding us of the battle that took place with the first giant. 
That first giant who taunted David and who taunted Israel and who day after day after as the champion of the Philistine army was the mouthpiece of the Philistines, the enemies of God's people as they taunted God's people across the way. And as God sent out a shepherd boy with no weapons to fight this giant with his sling and five stones that he picked up from the brook, the one stone was slung and struck Goliath in the head and he fell without even using one of his weapons. David picked up five stones from that brook. Some have wondered, why did David pick up five stones? Is there some symbolism in the number five? Or what did it mean? He only needed one. But in 2 Samuel 21, we have the stories of four more giants who all fell the same way. With all the descriptions of their weapons and their size, there is nothing more to say. They fell at the hands of David and his men. But you notice, one of these stories includes more details than the others. The first story at the end of verse 15 tells us that when David went down to fight against the Philistines, he became exhausted. And one of the giants, Ishbi Banab, declared that he would kill David. Verse 16. And then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue and he struck the Philistine down and he killed him. And then we're told that David swore to him, saying, never again will you go out to, uh, with us to battle so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. What do they mean? Why are they so concerned about David and his life and his presence in their midst? The very first part of First Samuel tells us, for in First Samuel chapter 3, it is the time of the judges And you know that during the time of the judges, there was Samuel the high priest who remained in the temple serving the Lord. And things were so bad because Eli the priest's sons were so wicked. And in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord calls Samuel. We're told the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Yet in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And then one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place and were told that the lamp of God had not gone out. The lamp of God in the temple represented the presence of God with his people. And things are so bad in Israel, the flame is flickering. But God had a plan through Samuel. For God would use Samuel to anoint King David to be king of Israel. 
And now at the very end of Second Samuel, in this concluding story, we are reminded of David's role in the presence of God's people. God was with his king. David is described by his men as the lamp of Israel. The men of David know that as long as David is present, as God's king is present among his people, they have nothing to fear from their enemies. They know as soldiers in David's army that because they are related to David, because they are connected with David as the lamp of Israel, God is with them. God's power is with them. God's deliverance is with them as they go to battle as long as David, their king, is present in their land and on the throne. And they are out to protect David. For if he dies, the lamp they fear may be extinguished. But what about those original readers of this book? They lived in a divided kingdom. David was no longer on the throne. And David has reminded them that yes, God is their king. But has the lamp of God and God's presence with His people gone out. In Second Kings chapter 8, during that divided kingdom, it is the time of Jehoram, king of Judah. Jehoram has married in Second Kings chapter 8 the daughter of Ahab, wicked king Ahab of Israel. And we're told in verse 19 that nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, though Ahab's daughter influenced Jehoram and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 19, nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah, for he had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forevermore. God had promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that a king from David's line would be on the throne of God's people forever and ever. The descendants of David have carried on God's presence among his people. Though he had married a wicked wife, Though he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, God's promise remained for the people of Israel even when their nation was destroyed by the kingdom of Babylon. But that was not the end of their hope. For God's promise remained. And God sent a king God sent a king who is God with us. God sent a king so that God's presence would be with his people, both now and forevermore. And this king's qualifications, Matthew tells us, 
He was from the tribe of Judah. He was born in David's hometown of Bethlehem. He was related to David as a son of Joseph, as one from the line of David's descendants. And he was born not in a palace, but in a manger and in a stable. When he came to earth, he did not come with great physical features like a giant. He did not come with powerful weapons that he could use to fight the earthly enemies of God's people and drive the Romans out of the land. But he came with something much more powerful. He came and walked a perfectly righteous life. And he walked all the way to the cross. And when he died, he died in an atmosphere of darkness on that cross. And our enemy, the enemy of God's people, thought the lamp of God had been extinguished. But that was not the end, you see. That was His victory. His death on the cross won the battle for God's people. His death on the cross paid for their sins. His resurrection from the dead was the bright light shining of the glory of God's victory and of His victory and of His conquering sin and death. And His light will never go out. Do you remember what we read for the Scripture reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, beginning at verse 22? The author of Revelation describes for us what he sees in heaven, even now for God's people. When he looks into the heavenly realms as God has revealed it, we're told in verse 23 that the city there does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, we're told. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there, and the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Our king is seated in heaven on high. Our King is Son of God, Son of Man, who is seated in heaven in victory on high forevermore. He has completely defeated the enemy. And you, as sons and daughters of Him, have been adopted into His family. And though you may face harm, and trouble in this life. Your victory has been won in Christ. 
and the things that you face spiritually, it's not even a fight. For that victory has been won for you in your King and His victory on the cross. As we begin a new year and we reflect upon times past and times of the future, maybe on earth we can get discouraged about the culture in which we live or the economy or government leaders. But our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in our Savior. Our hope is in the fact that God's Son, Jesus Christ, is our King. This Son of David, from the tribe of Judah, born at Bethlehem, has given us victory, both now and forevermore. And we, as His people, know that His lamp will never be extinguished. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.